is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. Troy McGinnis is back. Troy, thank you for making time this afternoon. Thank you for having me. And thank you in advance for everyone who's listening who's going to appreciate what we're about to talk about. Um, Troy's got uh, some new courses up on his site, and one of them is free. And it's got some stuff in there that I think would be very valuable for anybody who's listening to this podcast, especially some people that are not deeply schooled in kind of lean ways of looking at work and measuring work. Um, so before we get into all that, Troy, would you mind giving a little bit of background for the folks who might not be familiar with you or the other interviews we've done? Oh, uh, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I'm someone that you don't want to know. I teach math and, uh, probability to, uh, to executives mostly. Uh, so I, uh, I teach how to forecast and how to use data in decision-making and, uh, I end up in the agile industry, uh, more often than not. So, um, yeah, I guess that was what my mother asked. What do you do for a living? You know, I had to, well, you know, <laughs> teach a bit of math. And uh, she said, you were terrible at math at school. Yeah, yeah, okay, mum, move on. How were you? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, like I had no love. Wow. I mean, it was, it was better than English, but, uh, and, uh, but you know, I, and, you know, science and physics I liked. Um, okay. and, and then building stuff I liked, practical stuff. But this theoretical BS no, I had no love Not of that. Not so much. All right. So I would like to add to, I would like to yes, end your explanation. So here's why you need to know, Troy. If you ever have questions about what stuff you need to measure with your teams or why or how any of that works, or if you get into complex problems, like I need to show my management how them jamming work into our sprints is constantly jacking up our team and hijacking our ability to deliver, Troy is an amazing resource for you. He's got a website called Focus Objective with tons of free information and tools and all kinds of things that help people figure this stuff out. So um, I would like to thank you on behalf of the Agile community and the project management community for that stuff. You created the Agile Physics, the Math of Flow for a very specific reason. Would you mind sharing what that is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forget. We're being recorded, so I'll make it polite. Um, <laughs> I guess if you're in the agile world for any period of time, um, you know, you you hear sound bites of just known truths that, oh, of course, team size must be seven people. You know, and of course, you know, uh, after 80% utilization, everything goes bad. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes if I was in a bad mood, I would ask, well, why? And I would be, you know, it would be stunned silence in our industry. Um, so I felt that we don't understand some of the reasons why some of the best and good practices that we profess in Agile are, uh, are real and are, are actually applicable. So when we get challenged by our executive teams as to, well, you know, I can't limit work in progress. It makes no sense. Uh, I need more work done. We actually have some basis to explain to them why that isn't um, the, the actual truth on the ground. So I, I sort of uh, built this course as uh, little, little sort of targeted topics that help people sort of uh, understand why what they're saying is, is potentially true. Okay. Um Thank you. And, and I, I, we're going to talk about utilization and later on, we're going to talk about Monte Carlo as well, but um, the utilization section of this course, which I just took the part of it this afternoon and within like three minutes, I had a note that said, I make, need to make everyone I know watch this because you, you explain this stuff at a level that makes it accessible. And for my project manager brain, it's at a level of depth that I never even saw. 
It's like somebody opened a new room. I was taught from back in the days of my Gantt charts that resources should be not not utilized over 100%. Because when you get up to like 250%, people don't finish their work. So they had tools to level everybody to make sure no everybody was always booked at 100%. And we assume everything will happen the way it's supposed to. And all the project plans can be scheduled out you know, to whenever they're due. Um, and that's carried over into places I go now where I meet people on teams whose managers want them to be 100% utilized all the time, which common sense, I think, would say that's too much. But you're you know, talking about- I think we can all agree that uh, if you're more than 100% utilized, then something is waiting, even if it's not marked as such. <laughs> but the, the thing that you have in the beginning of this course explains utilization in a kind of a different way. And I'm wondering if you can give sort of an abridged version of it and maybe explain the, the workbook too. Sure, sure. So, I mean, the way the course is structured is there's like a section like on system utilization. And I try and give a video on the theory of that. And then I try and give you a calculator and some references to go and do more research on those areas. So in system utilization, you know, it's a pretty well-known known fact from the 60s and the 70s because, you know, how many bank tellers do I have in a branch or how many checkouts do I have at the local supermarket? We understand that, you know, we don't want too many people queuing and waiting for those services or they might go elsewhere. Uh, so uh, we can apply the lessons learned in that field to our world if we might have a constraint in the system, someone doing a specific skill set, laying bricks, uh, talking to the back-end database, um, rolling out sort of uh, certificates to, uh, you know, Amazon virtual machines, that sort of stuff. Then if people are going to rely on that, that person, um, what could cause a long delay of getting that immediate access to that service, that, that utilization? So what it turns out to be, and you can imagine it, if you've got everyone at a supermarket and you've got, um, you know, you've got one, one checkout person and everyone turns up at one time, then those people are going to wait until they get, they get processed really one time, at yeah. a time. Uh, well, so we know that a smooth arrival rate allows us to um, process more people for the same you know, 24 hour period of time, if they all turn up at once. So how does that apply in our world? Well, we do all the development at the beginning and then we try and write all of our automated tests at the very end. Well, of course you're gonna block on your on your testing resources in that, in that case. And so the way to think of the formulas and the way I explain system utilization here is, is that it tells you what to look at and what to look for to maximize what you're going to get out of that equation. And it turns out that the arrival rate matters as well as the variability of how long it takes to serve each customer. So, you know, we put a lot of effort into our world of trying to reduce the amount of time it takes to service each customer. But why do we implement whip limits? Why do we sort of have class of service? Why do we do prioritization? It's to make sure that we smooth out the incoming flow of that work so that we, for a fixed period of time, can get more work through that constraint. Um, so that's what I'm trying to get people to understand here. Don't worry about the math formula, although I give it to you. 
<laughs> that was the part where I was like, oh, here's the confuse. My note said, here's the big confusing formula. Yeah. So then I, so I split that out into a separate video and sort of saying, if you're interested, um, you know, this is, this is how to understand what factors cause high delay time. And in this case, you know, the, the formula is Kingman's formula from 1961. And, uh, but you know, what it shows is it gives you all the, all the uncertainties, which just get summed together. So they're all absolutely equal. There's no difference between any type of variability. If you have high variability in one of them, it would matter equally if you had high variability in another. So we need to deal with variability. Uh, so that's what system utilization is. You can have 100% system utilization. If you had all Teslas on autopilot going along a freeway at 70 miles an hour, all exactly the same distance behind each other in following and uh, all with the same braking and acceleration performance, then you could get to 99, 100% utilization and they would all just flow along that freeway flawlessly. But start putting trucks and, and people like me who are, you know, are checking their Twitter feed while they're sort of, uh, while they're waiting in traffic at the lights and so forth, we all, we add variability of flow into that system. So I view the job of Agile, and especially the way we do Lean and Kanban and Scrum, as in reducing the variability of the arrival rates and, and decreasing the cycle time when we have them, which allows us to have higher utilization and benefit from it. Okay. I have a bunch of questions I want to check in with you on this stuff. So for, for I'm going to try to summarize some of it and see if I'm on the same page. I, I started talking about people, but to me, overutilizing a person or overutilizing a system, either way, stuff gets jammed up and you're not going to get what you need. That's right. Whether okay. it's a, a, a team or a person or a skill set or a bit of equipment. Or somebody really doing COVID not. testing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we had lines here that were like all day long when that first started. And then people started scheduling it and things got better. And that's maintaining that arrival rate. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Turning up at 1 a.m., you probably would have been um, yeah, one, go of, through one right, of the very few people there. Right away. Okay. Now, so if this is a known thing, why then do so many companies still start at the beginning of the year thinking, let's just start all the projects at once and have everybody work on everything at one time, knowing full well they're going to finish like four? Yeah. Well, when you break down those those people or teams into just a, a, a cost value about how much I'm paying per period of time, it's just natural to want to reduce that variable. So, you know, that's the cost accounting side of our brain sort of saying, well, this is costing me a lot of money. I better make sure that it's being used fully. Mm -hmm. But then we fail to use it fully because we saturate it with uh, a high utilization, which just almost ensures that uh, we get very low flow through that system. So I guess that's, you know, in back in the early days there, I think it was David Anderson had a book on uh, agile and lean math where he introduced the cost accounting versus flow of throughput accounting, and he contrasted the two. And the book, This is Lean, if you read the book, This is Lean from um, out of Europe somewhere, it's probably one of my favorite books to hand to any executives, which very clearly discusses the perils of looking at utilization and cost accounting versus flow accounting, throughput accounting of any system. So even outside of software, uh, this is a hard lesson that we've been talking about for 20 
five years, but is still struggling to break through the CFO view of budgeting of resourcing. Yeah. So you're talking about this is lean by Nicholas Modig? Yeah, that's the one. Okay. Thank you, Amazon. Um, (laughs) So some of it broke through though. Like when I was looking at at the workbook, you've got the sliders and, and you're talking about how we have to look at um, not just utilization, but arrival time and variability of each. I was taught, look at utilization. Like what some stuff gets through and some stuff doesn't. And that's the part that's so interesting to me. Like, why do we pick one of four things that only care about that? I don't know if you have an answer to that or not. But. Not, not in polite company. Um, yeah. I mean, because we, I mean, someone says it and it is one of the, one of the important variables, Okay. Um, but uh, we then sort of want to latch on to simple answers and just say it's 80%. Well, is it 80%? Always 80%? What what else causes 80% to be at that, that sort of magic, magic critical inflection point of where utilisation and queuing time start to explode? Uh, and uh, and it turns out, well, it's it's um, variability. Well, what's variability mean? Well, there's, there's two factors to that. Um, so it, it's... People glaze over it. One, you know, they they always read the first couple of chapters of a book, but then you ask, "What happened in chapter three? And they don't know. Yeah. So that does that. I'm thinking of like managers who are constantly injecting work into a sprint. That's going to cause that variability, right? It could do. Yeah. I mean, if and it may be necessary. I mean, I'm not saying that that variability isn't. Uh, isn't needed. Like if you're in running in a, an emergency room or, a, you know, accidents right. in an emergency room and so forth, of course you need the option to expedite a heart attack patient to the front of the queue because the outcome is so dire if they're not seen sooner. But what we need to realize is the price we pay for that. And that's what I'm, I think sometimes what we do is we don't ever mention the price paid for some of the practices we we offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, um, so none of, so yeah, I mean, you want to smooth out a rival rate and you want to see people first in first out, but you need to specify the policy of when you want to avoid that. And then the price you pay for that. And you're willing to pay for that because it's important to have, um, some people seen before others. So you would never sort of strictly say, okay, my team is going to work on what we chose in the sprint. Even if we have a production outage, that wouldn't yeah. happen, nor does it have to happen. But you do have to realise that if you don't keep some utilisation in reserve to account for those production issues or the checking the logs of a morning and and, and debt reduction, you're going to pay a, a high delay cost for the other work later. Uh, and um, so you might be better off not planning to 100% utilisation during sprint planning which yeah. will give you that room because the price you pay by not doing that is 10 times what it would be if you just get that last sort of 10% of work through. Okay. So I want to say this, this simple example out loud and see if this holds. If I owned a restaurant and I wanted to make sure that I had tables, a table for VIPs, it's Lady Gaga is going to show up and I want her to be able to sit and have a meal at the restaurant. Um, if I, if I f- fill every table, and Lady Gaga shows up, I don't have any place for her to sit. That's right. So in order to have the place, I have to leave a table open 
which means that wait person is not earning money on that table. The restaurant's not earning money on that table while it's waiting for the celebrity to show up. But I'm, that's the, the cost of having availability for Lady Gaga eating at my restaurant is I have to have a place open for her when she gets there. And when she does turn up, you want to make sure she pays a price commensurate with you having to keep that availability free. Oh, okay. All right. So it's, not about, it's not about sort of um, someone losing here. Yeah. It's about you gaining the ability to react and respond fast to, to these opportunities. So it would have to be, you would have to have a consistent history of Lady Gaga or similar uh, net worth individuals turning up to your restaurant. Okay. to make that available. But it's that discussion that we've got to have uh, is, is that um, sometimes we, uh, we do not want to turn away high-value work or high-value customers, uh, so we're going to reserve capacity in case that happens, but we're going to sort of make sure that um, we sing the praises of doing that. So often we sort of, when we talk about reducing utilization to smooth out flow and to decrease the, the queuing time of new work coming in, we need to sell that as a positive by putting reserving 10 or 20% of our capacity. It allows us to respond to production issues instantly versus them having to wait and uh, until other work is finished. Um, we don't we don't ever phrase it that way. It's always viewed as an expense or cost. Like you just phrased that as someone loses their re- the, the, yeah. the waiter doesn't doesn't get the tip or doesn't get get something for that table being vacant. No, you get the ability to attract customers like Lady Gaga, yeah, who actually um, give you the ability to do that work, and that's how we need to talk to executives. Okay, so if this is so deeply known it's like you said it's been proven over and over again it's basically this the physics of reality of the work that we do there are so many businesses that pretend this isn't reality i'm thinking like of a digital agency model where everybody's on 13 projects and they're all overbooked because we expect at some point the client's going to be late and giving us feedback and we don't want anyone sitting idle not earning you must be earning every single moment um, it, there's no ability to, to handle the surprise work that comes in. That's right. And, and if you're going to leave that availability, then the people coming to you for that surprise work need to pay a premium for that access to that, that, that system. And, I mean, we do that on aeroplanes, right? I mean, we, um, we allow people to get certain status that allows them to jump the queue and get mm-hmm. a better quality of service uh, than others. Um, and all I'm saying is that we need to do that with our constraints in our systems as well. So okay. this isn't this is this is uh, this is known good business practice. It's just we think of reserving <laughs> utilization as a cost, and we need to think of reserving utilization as a benefit. I don't know if I'd say it's. I, I feel like I want to debate with you for a while about whether or not it's known. I think it's good business practice. It's known to some, maybe ignored by others. Yeah. Yeah which, you know, is, is obviously going to cause them problems. So that's like, if you're listening, this is the kind of stuff that I always enjoy that I get out of these conversations with Troy is that there's things that are there that we, a lot of us just don't see. And it's not that they're not understood and they're known. We just, whatever, don't have, weren't given the right kind of glasses to be able to see this stuff. Um, but your tools give people those glasses. Yeah. But we teach people and I'm sure a lot of people on, on, on this podcast, 
you know, we teach people that they should set whip limits. Yeah. Well, the whip limits is what we're doing is we're smoothing out the arrival rate and managing utilization within a certain level. So we're actually applying this Kingman's formula in principle to our systems. But my frustration was people didn't understand why <laughs> and when it mattered and what types of systems and constraints it mattered more for. Uh, and that's that's sort of why I put this sort of course together. And why is it free? Because no one's going to pay for it. Because it's not sort of, a, you know, it's it's a bit deeper than people would like to learn. Well, I think I think it, at least for me, some of the stuff that's covered in this course, um, there are things that I I did not pursue. But when I got to a place where I started to pay attention to things like cycle time, I'm like, damn, I need more of this. I wish I had known this before. I wish I knew to look at these things because it gives me an understanding of how the work is moving at a level that I've never had access to. And so that, and that is really valuable. I think when you get to that point where you're able to, to look at, at the system and look at work and try to find ways to improve on it, you know, rather than just like, are they still breathing? Um, are they showing up for work at all? Well, so this one's free, but you've also got a course on Monte Carlo. And um, I wonder, I'm hoping you don't mind spending a few minutes on that. Cause I wanted to check in with you on, on my, original understanding of Monte Carlo analysis. Okay, go for it. So I remember that I remember like this moment, I was taking a project management class. I lived in Plano, Texas at this little hotel in a room. And this person started to talk about, I mean, I'd already gotten my PMP. So I'd heard the words Monte Carlo and I didn't really get it. It's just a thing. And they explained like, no, if you do Monte Carlo analysis on a project that you're going to do, the computer modeling will figure out the most efficient ordering of all the activities and it will create the perfect project plan for you. It'll game out all the different variables. It'll handle all the dependencies and the utilization, and it will show you what the plan should be. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, it's sort of like when the Millennium Falcon calculates the plan through hyperspace and that's exactly what happens. Um, but that's not the understanding that I had of, of Monte Carlo analysis now. Yeah, that that um, there's a whole set of fields of industry, uh, advanced planning systems, advanced planning tools, yeah, which attempted to do everything you just said, uh, what you believe Monte Carlo did, and the reason that I bet very few people on this 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 podcast have actually heard of advanced planning systems, advanced planning tools, is they no longer exist, and they were <laughs> equally as as, as as uh, it's like the dinosaurs, huge companies. They were some of the highest market yeah. capitalization companies of the day, and they all disappeared because um, it doesn't work. Well, complexity gets in the way, uncertainty, and you know it, it, it's assumed up front that you understood all of the variables that cause uncertainty in a project. Okay, um, and if you miss one. Um, and, and it causes one of those um, dependencies to shift, the, everything from that point on is no longer true. And the Millennium Falcon <laughs> and, and, explodes. Yeah, so, that, so they, they were fragile. So they, they, they looked fantastic up front before the project started. But once it started, up until the first point of meeting the enemy, the plan just went astray. Uh, oh, crap, you know, Ukraine's fighting back. That's 
<laughs> that was unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, and and from then on, you have to change your your tactics and strategies and implementation. But, or people don't want vaccines. I mean, I think the assumption was it was going to be like when smallpox happened. Everybody lines up and gets one in a day. Yeah, the assumption of, that everyone uh, equally took not going to hospital and dying as important as individual. Um, individual <laughs> sort of freedom um, is 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 a variable that, that that's unaccounted for. Yeah, uh, and of course, if you're on one side or the other, you you look at the other side and sort of saying you're insane. Right. But but um, you know, in our projects, there's individual pockets of people that understand what could go wrong at different periods of time, and not all of that is is modelled up front. Um, so, what do you understand as Monte Carlo is now? It's a way of looking at all the possibilities. Yeah. yeah I kind of, and I kind of want to stop there. Like it's just a way of seeing options. That, that's, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, all Monte Carlo is for the listeners there is it's, it's a way of doing mathematical formulas on numbers, which aren't fixed that they're, they're, they've got a range or they've got a distribution in size and it combines those together and tells you if everything goes badly, it could be as long as this. If everything goes well, it could be as long as this. And here's all the color variations between. Um, and, you know, why would you do that? Well, if some of those worst case outcomes um, are extinction level events for your company or project, then you might want to start managing them now. Um, but what Monte Carlo helps you do is find out which ones. And how is it? This, so this is like, there's an 80% chance that they will finish within this time frame. That's right. There's an 80% chance it'll finish on this date or before. And, and that's how we're applying Monte Carlo, but more generalistically, right? So you've got un the uncertainty of how fast you're moving. You've got the uncertainty of how much scope there is. You've got the uncertainty of... Um, how blocked you're going to be on other teams and dependencies. You've got uncertainty of different times of the year. In Europe, everyone's on vacation in August. In Australia, everyone's on vacation in December and January. We mm -hmm. we max out our, our our holiday drunkenness to two months of the year. So <laughs> how do you combine all those uncertain factors into something to sort of saying, and we're going to be done by March with some degree of certainty. Well, you know, what Monte Carlo helps you do is um, people in their head can pretty much account for two sort of factors of uncertainty, the scope yeah. and throughput might be, or through velocity, you know, we might be able to, to factor those two together, but start showing in uncertainty number three, uncertainty number four, uncertainty number five, uncertainty number six, uncertainty number seven, and suddenly the problem is way beyond what we can do in our heads. And that's where sort of like a Monte Carlo spreadsheet comes in. It helps you document and write down all the sources or as many sources of uncertainty as you have, and then run experiments on that model to see which one of those uncertainties is it in my interest to manage most. And um, so it's it's about seeing a, a set of future possibilities, finding the ones you want to avoid, and then understanding which factors you need to manage to avoid hitting those potholes. Okay. So I want to ask some questions about this. Um, part of how I'm thinking about it in my head, and this is something I need to check the understanding on. Let's say I have a set deadline for something to happen. I can say there's an 80% chance that this much scope will be delivered by that date or a 50% chance that this much scope will be delivered by that date. And that's going to be all based on 
throughput and variability and, and all that other stuff. Is that, is that right so far? That's right. Yeah. You, you okay. get to choose when you're Monte Carlo, however you're doing it. I mean, it, you get to choose what factors you're going to uh, put into it. Right. Uh, so if you miss something, some important factor, don't expect your Monte Carlo result to be accurate. Okay. But the job of actually even sitting down and thinking about what are the sources of uncertainty and disaster that could be looming in our project, yeah. often even just having that conversation will help you come up with ways to avoid those things coming true. Um, so, or if it's a risk I'm willing to accept, right? Because yeah. I mean, there's going to be some kind of, of profile to... where some stuff I'm just going to be like, yeah, that could happen. Monte Carlo equally tells you what you can ignore. And okay. I think what happens is we tend to over-focus on the things we think are important, but they're not actually going to have a significant impact on the end of the day. So part of Monte Carlo is doing small experiments on the model, change each of the inputs by 10% one at a time and see which one changes the date the most. Okay. Well, the one that changes the date the most is the, is the one that you absolutely want to, uh, want to be in control of. So put, put practices and process around that. Um, so, uh, yeah. So instead of, instead of like my original understanding was it shows you the, the optimal plan, this shows you the things that are basically the levers that create the tipping point. That's exactly right. And okay. so it teaches you what to manage them, uh, how to manage them. So it's not about the, you know, forecasting a date of when it will be done. It's about seeing what factors most influence that date and okay. then making sure you, you, you bring those factors in on time. Um, and that's sort of the way it's done in other industries because our industry stopped at chapter one, which says, <laughs> let's just forecast the date about when it can be done. But the true intent of Monte Carlo was to um, combine uncertainty together and then to run experiments on that uncertainty to see which uncertainty is most sensitive to causing a change, an adverse change in the output. Yeah. And uh, I, that's where I want people to get to with this stuff uh, is to don't think about it as a, a one and done upfront forecasting tool, but think about it as a tool to examine your complexity in your systems to see which sources of uncertainty you should use agile to fix. Okay. All right. So I have a question I didn't tell you that I was going to ask it decided just just now that I wanted to ask it. We've talked about this a little bit before. Uh, or I've brought it up before. I've been watching Billions, right? The TV show. And, and those people that those like nerdy, are you familiar with the show? Yep. Familiar with okay. the show, yeah. So the nerdy people that sit there and look at all the financial stuff and come up with the like passionless modeling and decide what thing is going to be the trigger for whatever. Um, the quants, I think they're called quants. I don't understand why we don't have them at a PMO level or working, looking at teams across an organization to find all the stuff like you're talking about here to, because this is not something the average person on a team is going to understand or not a calculate. I wouldn't think. Why don't we have people looking at this stuff? It's, it's a huge lost opportunity. Um, you know, like we don't, what, you know, what the quants are doing in the finance side of it is they're trying to spot something that other people haven't seen yet so that they can make money from it. Um, but we too tend to 
fix our processes or choose frameworks based on folklore rather than real data. So, you know, the agile data science isn't really a, a field that is in existence at the moment, but just imagine what you could do if you uh, could work out uh, which unit tests or integration tests are the uh, are the ones which add most value to your continual improvement process, or which missing areas of code tests uh, are leaving you most exposed to a production failure. Uh, you know what what could we do by sort of um, analyzing very simple data we have about our processes and our deployment processes development and deployment processes that could help us um, not try and just have 100% code coverage in our tests, but make sure that uh, we have code coverage in the right areas, yeah. uh, what tests are adding the most value, what, where our code is most fragile, where we ha- when we have a check-in in this code, it causes a failure in production later on. Wouldn't it be good to know where your tech debt is growing so that you can fix it? and not have that production outage at all. Um, Huge lost opportunity. Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, for all the posturing we do about being scientific and thoughtful with our experimentation, it's a kind of sophomoric in the the way we look at some of the stuff. Yeah. Yep. I guess I don't have to convince you of this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you're. uh, I think you're selling, you're giving us too much credit calling us sophomoric. But yeah, I think we could sort of... um, yeah, we're elementary for sure. But we um, we sort of jumped to the car chase at the end and just sort of said, listen, I don't want to go through the whole movie. I just want to know whether the protagonist lives or dies. Yeah. And and it's sort of um, that's what the, this actual physics thing is trying to do in a way is, is tell you that there's some um, there's some stuff between uh, problem and solution use. that we yeah. need to understand. Yeah. I mean, when I and I remember when I went through project management training, like earned value is like the depth of science for me. Like I saw that stuff and I was like, oh my gosh. And then I saw somebody figured out how to do it in Scrum and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but um, this is worlds beyond that. Um, so if people, what is your hope for these courses that, that you've put together? What do, you, what do you want people to get out of them? Well, yeah, there's, there's the, the Agile Physics one is the stuff that I always wanted to talk about, but no one would ever really look at. <laughs> and then um, the other courses I've got there, are, you know, like after 20 odd years of doing the Monte Carlo stuff and helping companies sort of do Monte Carlo and team metrics and, and organizational metrics, I've got to do that sensitivity analysis many, many times. So I think I have a, a better gauge than many as to where if you could fix certain problems, you would probably be better off doing it. Um, so you'll sort of see, uh, you know, the first courses I have there are on Monte Carlo because I want people to understand how uncertainty influences the outcome. Yeah. Um, I have the team sort of dashboard stuff there because I want people to start capturing data so that they can do that quantitative analysis on their process. And then I've got some stuff coming up on dependencies and blocker management because I think that we don't, we talk about jumping the shark and only people over 50 probably know what that what well that you means. can say nuke the fridge and then you get the generation after right, okay well there you go whatever generation you have there right think about we we picked up these principles early on there from the Poppendicks and the david anderson's and and so forth on lean and lean was about waste reduction in factory 
management. You know, we we have a factory set of stuff, find the constraint, theory of constraints, gold rate, all that sort of stuff. We did that. And what did we build? We build tools that give us the state of an individual item. But what was Lean about? Lean about was finding the spots in the factory process where things weren't flowing and fixing it. Right. It was understanding there was a constraint in the system and then fixing that constraint and then moving on to the next one and moving on to the next one. So uh, I wish our tool vendors would spend more time thinking about the reasons why work isn't flowing, not the status of individual items, but what are the causes of work being stuck? Yeah. Like we, we look at WIP and we say, well, just reduce it and put pressure on people just to start stuff that can finish. But to do that, we often cherry pick items, which we can do to the current organization we have. We don't fix the organization to make the right work flow. And that's because our tools are all focused on, on the status of work and which state they're in, rather than this one can't move because of these factors. Yeah. So um, the stuff I'm doing on dependencies and, and blockers, I think, has takes us back to the roots of if we could get numerical data around blockers and dependencies, we could um, quantitatively, quantitatively choose better ways of organising our teams and work to make that correct type of work flow. So that's what I hope to do with this stuff is if the end game there for me is very, very clearly that a blocker is why work is blocked now. A dependency is speculating that work will be blocked in the future unless we do something. Okay. And I want us to do that something and know that there's something to be done. Um, and um, so all this stuff for me comes down to what's causing work not to flow. And we went through utilization is one. The arrival rate is one. The, um, the, the cycle time uniformity is perhaps one. Um, and I want to know what those factors are and fix them rather than tracking the work. So, you know, at best we flag work as blocked. That's not good enough. Why is it blocked? Who needs to know it's blocked? How do we, how do we make sure everyone knows it's blocked? And there's a whole gap in our industry, I think, in, um, in applying lean with just applying status tracking better well and i think if it's blocked the answer is like that animal farm we will work harder it's just they'll do they'll stay this weekend and then we'll be unlocked and then just, everything will be fine just keep them more utilized it's it's a yeah. utilization problem <laughs> it's a people it's a people suck problem yeah. and that's a really very low on the list of reasons why work doesn't i think work. that that right? should be a t-shirt it's not people. utilization it's a people suck problem yeah like <laughs> we, we just need 10x developers yeah well what if you just did one X better management of your process, you know? Uh, well, and, and that, but that's, I think that's a big part of what your work does too, is it helps people see the system. Yeah. See things about the system they didn't see before and, and have an awareness that they didn't well, have. Before. That's the problem. We zoom in on teams and we assume if the teams were better, flow would improve. Yeah. But what if the problem in the system is the connection between those teams? a la dependencies and hello that's what i find more often than not is the biggest opportunity that's lost if we were billions and we had lots of quants we would certainly not be focusing on implementing better team tooling we would be focusing on making sure the right teams coordinate together to get that work done it's it's about the interactions and we knew this you know akov does that great sort of youtube if you look at akov um system 
YouTube sort of uh, video, he talks about building, getting the best pieces of every car and trying to assemble them into a working unit and it won't work. You don't even get a car if you get the best transmission, the best engine, because it's the interaction between the parts that matters. And we, our frameworks tend to focus on, on, on the parts rather than the interactions. Um, yeah. And that's where I think we get it wrong. So that's why I, like, I like the flight level stuff from Klaus Leopold. If you ever look at that stuff, because it's, it's pretty much a process that solely focuses on the interactions. It doesn't tell you how to track the work or do anything like that. It's just that you can attract work you, as you were, but let's talk about how we get the right people talking about the right things together to get that stuff through. Um, and yeah, we need to, we need to do something like that. Yeah. Cool. All right. So if they want to find out more about this, they can go to learn.focusobjective.com, right? Yep. That's correct. And just put a link in the, I will. I will with all the other ones. Um, And I'm going to specifically point out the Agile Physics, the Math of Flow course, which I'm in the middle of right now. And is, I mean, I know some of this stuff, but it's having a huge impact on me already. And then the Monte Carlo one as well. But there's a ton of great stuff. And you've also got all the free stuff as well on your regular website, focusobjective.com. What if they want to get in touch with you? What's the best way to do that? Oh, just go to one of those sites and just uh, send me a message. Um, yeah. I mean, you put my email in there. They can just schedule okay. a call anytime. So yeah, but yeah, uh, Troy.McGinnis at okay. gmail.com or at focusobjective.com. You'll get me. I've got a pretty unique name. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Sir. I really appreciate you taking time out today. And it was great talking to you as well. I always, I love catching up and I love learning all this stuff. Okay. Make it, you make the math less scarier. Yeah, so, just remember that, that math is nothing more than showing you what what goes into a result. Um, and it's not the how the formula works that's important. It's what's in the formula, what factors you need to worry about. And what you do with the information. There you go. Yeah, cool. All right, well, thank you, sir. All right, thank you. Thank you.